there's something about not being like fully satisfied with the world how it is because I don't I don't think we should <laughs> accept the way the world is now but at the same time being able to appreciate the world as it is and like I don't know having room for gratitude and being able to say this is enough I'm Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Amanda. This episode was recorded March 30, 2023. I am so glad to have gotten to talk to Amanda for this podcast. We have been friends for a while and share quite a bit of history, some of it certainly painful, but much of it beautiful. One thing I forgot to mention in this interview is that she was the first friend I came out to in college, and she was incredibly kind and supportive. In fact, more supportive than I was to myself. Amanda talks about her spiritual journey and her changing views on sacrifice. Content warnings for talk about racism and religious trauma. Spoilers for the show, The Good Place. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean that I agree with them on all matters, or even many matters. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Amanda. All righty then. So <clears throat> there is the first question, which so often I'm excited for this, but I, I'm definitely excited for this one. Uh, how do you and I know each other? When I was in college, my freshman year was like this big, exciting year and one of the things that was really exciting was starting up these small group ministries uh, with other friends uh, that were mostly based around like talking about what was going on in our lives and praying for each other and everything was like amazing freshman year and then all these groups kind of petered out in my sophomore year and that was really sad mm -hmm. Uh, and then in my junior, toward the end of my junior year, it was like, okay, like it's try time to start something new, try something new. And I started thinking about like how to sort of have more longevity in a group like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, in a college setting to have longevity, you have to have like a mix of students of different mm -hmm. ages. And so one of the things that we really, that I was like really intentional about is like, okay, we have to like bring we have to be consistently bringing in like younger students mm -hmm. and so I don't remember you probably remember this part better than I do mm -hmm. but I think I maybe asked someone that uh maybe a staff person if there were any Barnabases that had any like freshmen or sophomores who might be interested in a in a prayer group like this something like that some chain of events like that 
And that's how I got connected to you. So this is where the story gets strange. Uh-huh. And I really should have thought to ask my dad about this before we, we talked, but I'll... Oh, really? Maybe it, maybe I'll ask him and I'll mention it in the intro. But <clears throat> so my memory of this is that my dad had a connection to someone... Oh, that's right! That's right. Had a connection to a person who used to be part of it at some point. Or yeah, uh, yeah, <clears throat> right. So it was right. Yeah, yeah. That that person was like a member of one of the groups when I was a freshman, but had graduated by the time I was a senior. Yeah, yeah. So I don't remember. It must have been someone at a supporting church knew this person, or maybe he was at a supporting church. Whatever the case. My dad connected me with this group. I forgot about which that. Which is bizarre to me. And so much of my life I've hated when my dad has invaded in my life. This one I'm very grateful for. And <laughs> yeah, because that group ended up being a huge part of my friends. Like all majority of my friends were in that group. Right. Yeah. And this prayer group has come up twice in my <laughs> interviews. Yeah. Because that's how well, it's definitely how I met one one person that I've interviewed before. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's I remember I remember walking down those weird stairs <clears throat> that were difficult to step down and to step up. Yes. The weird, difficult stairs that were too long. I remember walking down those stairs to the apartments. Yeah. And... Which was where the upperclassmen the who upper lived class on campus were. lived. Yeah. I was a lowly freshman. And it was just amazing. It was all of these female engineers, you included. <laughs> <laughs> and and scientists and scientists and, <laughs> and here I was you know like a, I was a film major literature minor and but it was great it yeah a lot of just very odd wonderful people yeah and uh you know more than one queer person which I didn't realize yeah. at the time yeah so yeah and then we you hosted at your right you know shared space hosted it and you made all of these vegetarian sort of colorful like soups and stir fries i remember uh-huh yeah for enough for like 12 yeah. 14 people something like that yeah which <laughs> Like, looking back now, I'm, like, kind of amazed that I could do that because I also was on a college student budget at the time. So it was, yeah. like, yeah, it was very, very specific way of cooking. <laughs> I wonder if it was, you probably, like, shopped at Aldi's or, like, things like that, places that were cheaper. Yeah, but... I don't know. And I, I bought, I mean, it was all really cheap stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It was, like, beans and it was, like, because most of the school year there wasn't any, like, spring or summer vegetables in season so it's mostly like winter like mm -hmm. root vegetables 
Squash, um, a lot of squash. Squash, yeah. Stuff that you could get cheaply in the fall and winter and early spring, which was great. Yeah, it was just... You're a very... And this continues to be true. You're a very earthy sort of... Well, I guess people tend to use that to mean like maybe like a like cross Sensual. language or sexual but i i mean like you were very connected to the earth mm-hmm. and sort of i don't know hippie child like yes. vibe going on flexitarian and i because of you and some other people i cooked meat a total of two times i think in college i did i i ate meat but when I cooked for myself, because I lived with you for a little bit and I right, lived with another right, person um, right. who was vegetarian or flexitarian, it greatly impacted my life. And like for a couple of years after college, like I continued to mostly cook that way. And yeah, it's made it very helpful now, now that I have like a somewhat, not, a, not an actual vegan housemate, but someone who cannot who doesn't like meat and cannot have dairy. It has helped me like with the creativity. Yeah. With that. And also with people who are gluten-free and have all sorts of allergies. I think that's been vital. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, the, cause the way that we got to know each other better too, was like that I decided that you're going to be the next leader of the group or like the next like facilitator of the group. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> well, you're the youngest, so you're going to have the most longevity <laughs> if the group survived. That's true. <laughs> and you were really into it too. Like, yes. but a, a lot of the folks were seniors. And so it was just like, well, there's no point in, you know, mm. they're not going to be here next year probably. So, um, but that was such a cool thing. Yeah, that was one of the most cool, the coolest experiences for me. And from, I don't know, one of my coolest experiences, I think, has been like having all these like hopes and dreams and ideas for that group. And then like meeting you and like being able to pass on some of my ways of doing those things. And then you just taking it in your own way. And then, um, like, we spent a lot of time together, like mm-hmm. cooking, um, yeah. and then, like I was away for a year, and then when I came back, the group was still there, mm-hmm. and you were leading it, and I wasn't the leader anymore, which was fantastic. I was just a participant, and mm-hmm. then that group really held me and my spouse through a really hard period in our lives, in such a caring. And like non-judgmental way in a way that none of the rest of our existing community was really able to. Like we had some other individual people in our lives who could. Yeah. But there was no other community that we had that could. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that prayer group was a huge part of my life in general. Um, friendship, food, and and yeah, learning to sort of become a, a leader. Because yeah, I led that group for six years. 
Yeah, a no, long I mean, five time. years. Five years. Five years? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think I lived in the city for like four additional years, right? Something like that. 2012 to 2016. Yeah, no, I think for five years. Because yeah. of course, the first year you were leading it. And then, then I started to lead it. Which is funny because right now I have a similar type of group. It's not a prayer group, but it is a sort of gr- group of Christians and similarly minded folks. And it used to be led by someone else. And then that mm. person stopped being able to do it. And then mm-hmm. my partner and I have led it for the last couple That's of years. Cool. So I think it really has set up that ability for me to be able to host. I really enjoy hosting and um, yeah, that facilitative sort of role. Mm. But I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to jump over what you were saying about painful experiences as mm. well. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'm going to do I think that's going to come up. I don't think we're going to. It will. It will. I have it in. I, I will mention it when you ask me uh, what I want people to know about myself. So Okay. Well, that's the next question. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, Wait, I wanted to say one other thing about how I know you. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Just for kicks and giggles. So the fun thing about your dad having connected you with me is that then you connected me with your dad. Because my spouse and I, before we decided for sure that we we're going to get married, we wanted to do some kind of like, uh, you don't remember this, do you? Oh, no. What what happened? <laughs> yeah. So, so we wanted to like have some conversations kind of like pre, pre-engagement counseling, huh. like with, uh, I don't know ministry kind of couple and for some reason we decided on your parents (laughs) wow i totally forgot about you forgot about that yeah so you connected us with because your parents were in town and we were like yeah that that's on i I, you must have suggested it probably or something there's parts of my memory that i would like just like totally yeah no fair enough so anyway so we did pre-engagement counseling which is a thing that we kind of made up um to decide whether or not we wanted to get engaged mm-hmm. with your parents. Wow. <laughs> wow. Long time ago. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because now my parents are doing, um, like, I guess not premarital, but like they're they're part of like this mentorship program where they're mentoring mm-hmm. a couple. So, hmm. yeah, I'll have to bring that up with them because I, I totally forgot. And I think it's great. I think it's really really good to to do pre-engagement counseling and I think that's what most people should do actually I agree I I have actually recommended it to a couple of people although they decided to go with like an actual therapist instead of just like their friends parents but fair um Wow. That's great though. No, it was a good experience. There were yeah. there were just like a couple of things that even at the time we were just like 
we don't think we believe this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, but, but the fact that they made us talk about it mm-hmm. got, helped us solidify the fact that we didn't, neither of us believed it. So that was helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, yeah. Cause I was thinking, I'm like, so my parents and like the way that y- you and uh, your partner do things is very different. Uh, so yeah. I was just like, hmm. but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it is very helpful to have a couple bring up questions that you in on the inside, like you just wouldn't think about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I just think in general, when you're like in love and trying to make serious life decisions that might impact you for a long time, it's good to have more than just the two people who are mm-hmm. in love involved in the decision making process i mean obviously yeah. I, I don't think people other people should be making your decisions for you but like having more mm-hmm. community sort of accountability i think is really good yeah i i do regret i do regret that my partner and i in i think our rush did not properly think about premarital counseling and so we had Mm. someone who we just it wasn't ideal Mm -hmm. and uh yeah if I were to go back I would do that differently Mm. um Mm -hmm. yeah that it's really funny though I had forgotten about that entirely yeah hmm I'm glad I brought it up. Yes. That, yes. that is like a, a I, I like that I know, like when we talk, you know, about stuff together, like I do have that context of like, I have had an, quite a number of hours of conversation mm-hmm. with your parents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are a delightful couple. They are. They're, they're pretty adorable. They're adorable. They're a delight. <laughs> but yeah, let's, let, let's move on to the yeah, next question. Yeah, that sounds good. So yeah, this is the part where I ask people to introduce themselves to, yeah, what is important for other people to know about you? Who are you? Sure. Well, I thought what you said about me being like a very connected to the earth sort of person is is like an important part. Um, There's like a little bit of a contradiction there because... Mm-hmm. I'm, like, pretty committed to living, like, in a city Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. because there's also this, like, very important social justice side Mm. to me. And it's it's hard to get involved politically in a lot of stuff Mm. when you're, I don't know, further out from where a lot of the action is happening. Mm. Um, So... I don't know. And that's that's the way that I see it now. Maybe that'll change sometime. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Yeah, so it's like, yeah, that I have this kind of thing where it's important to me to live in a city and to live in a place where not everyone is just like me. Mm-hmm. And I also like have this, the connection with nature is really important to me. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, especially like as I've been raising a child, like... Mm. I go to the park with him all the time because I don't when 
where I grew up in a suburb and there was this giant like empty lot next to my house that I could just go run out and play in the woods anytime I wanted. And I Mm. like really want him to have that kind of connection with nature Mm. that I was given. Um, So there, there is like a hope for like this co-housing thing that will like be living in the city with lots of different people in a community also with a little bit more nature, Mm. but but right now it means like, yeah, we go to the park all the time, even when it's cold sometimes. I'm going to mention some things that are going to sort of show your sort of commitment to both. Yeah, being connected to the earth and also not being wasteful. Mm. So <laughs> some of which I find ridiculous or disgusting. <laughs> so- yeah. Some of it is ridiculous and or disgusting. So, so eating more uh, flexitarian, but like eating more vegetarian and mostly, mostly, mostly the food that we buy is vegan, but there are definitely exceptions. Yes. So yeah, mostly vegan, you garden, uh, or at least have when you've had the time for it. Yeah. You have compost, like you've mm-hmm. built compost. Mm-hmm. And also the ones that I found I had a harder time with. You dr- you used to drink the what was it? A- Aquafa, the 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 stuff from the the liquidy stuff around beans from cans. Yeah, my spouse does that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, no. I also don't I don't normally do that. That is my spouse who does that. Yeah, so so there was there was that. There was uh well, oh I remember when we were in one place, like you would use mostly like a bucket to flush the toilet. And I was like, okay. That's true. That's true. And well, then, because we would save the water from yes. our showers. Yes. To flush Yeah. It I think if we ever lived somewhere that was like in a drought, we might do that again. But that one, we we came up with lots of ideas, especially when we were first married, about like mm-hmm. every possible way that we could be like individually ecologically conscious. And I've backed away from a lot of that mm-hmm. after realizing that compared to... Well, like living in a Midwestern state that has tons of water and never is in a drought. It's like, well, what's the point of conserving water exactly? Right. Mm. Like, you know, like that's just not a good use of your time. You should be, you know, using your time to, I don't know, drive somewhere instead of taking a plane or Mm. taking some kind of political action against climate change or learning how to Mm. make vegan food or like there's so many things like, yeah, there's. I think initially we were like, we should do all the things and like realizing like, oh, no, that that's actually trying to do all the things is a way of guaranteeing that you probably won't do some of the more important things. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think mm -hmm. the the last thing I was thinking of was a compost toilet, which I actually respect um, a lot about that. But I can only do pee. Like I can only do pee for those things. <laughs> I totally understand that it is a gross thing. Uh, but 
Yeah, I just like from a from like a I don't know philosophical perspective. I really liked the composting mm-hmm. toilet piece, um, but. Uh, when you know that the alternative is that the our city actually does a pretty good job of like turning like sewage waste back into compost anyway, mm-hmm. it kind of makes it less. I mean, mm-hmm. I still think it's kind of wasteful because you're like you're first mixing it with water and all kinds of industrial chemicals, whatever whatever anyone puts down the drain. Um, mm-hmm. However, yeah, uh, yeah. We we decided to stop doing that. By the way, I, I'm laughing at all these things, but I also it makes me respect you deeply. <laughs> you know, as a person, like, you you actually put forward action to fulfill things that you believe in. And I think a lot of us, and myself included, think, well, I can't do it perfectly or I can't do it well, therefore I'm not going to do it at all and I'm just going to sit here on my couch mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I yeah I I do try to yeah try things and mm-hmm. and act on my like values um, and I think there's also kind of this like shadow side to that that I've learned more about as I've gotten older which is A being super judgmental toward other people mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, like, you don't intend to be judgmental toward other people, but, like, when you're doing all this stuff and you feel, like, especially when you do it to the point where you feel like you're putting yourself into hardship to do it, Mm -hmm. then it can be hard to, like, cut other people slack. And it can be hard to cut yourself slack. Those usually go together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That ties in really well with, like, some of the stuff I want to talk about with, like, my relationship with my body, too, because that's... That's mm-hmm. that's been like a huge learning for me over the past couple of years and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um but before we get to that, I know that you yeah. are wanting to talk about Oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't touch on the other piece that I said I would. So, we kind of already talked about this, but just to clarify also, um I have a spouse and I also have a child who's one and a half. And then, yeah, the other piece I wanted people to know is that I am religious and spiritual, and I have been from a very young age. Mm. However, when I was raised, I was pretty far, not all the way to the right, but Mm. pretty far to the conservative end of the the born-again evangelical kind of Christian um, upbringing and church and then now i'm way way on the like liberal end of mm-hmm. unitarian universalist mm-hmm. so still religious still spiritual mm-hmm. <laughs> just in a really different way but in a really similar way too at the same time you know it's mm-hmm. you know it's things change and things stay the same mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that has been and probably in certain ways still is. uh, It's been a really painful journey. And, you know, initially my experience of this was that it was very painful for me. (laughs) And 
And I, I think, I, yeah, I just have to put that out there because I think it's very important to our relationship. <laughs> and because you were a spiritual mentor for me mm. and I got so much about prayer and about God and all these things. And then one day I learned that your spouse was struggling with faith and then you were struggling with faith and then you weren't really identifying as a Christian. And then you did identify as a Christian, but not in a way that I would identify as a Christian. And, yeah. and I think I was really hurt and angry and freaking out because I was like, ah, you know, and, you know, it's when I came out as trans, I remember having this such a painful experience of people hearing that I was trans and mm. taking it personally and being like, mm. how dare you do this to me? Yeah. And and it being so hurtful. And I was talking to you about that. And then in our conversation, we were realizing, oh, I was like, oh, I did that to you. Ouch. And I totally understand where I was at. But also, I remember you saying like, you were in such pain. You were in such pain and you didn't have the support you needed because the people around you felt hurt and angry that you had caused this pain in them. And, and that's me included. So I, yeah, I know. I, I'm going to allow you to talk now. I've just, you know, said all my no. stuff. But, you know. No, yeah. Yeah, I, and I guess I want to give a little context to that of like, I also did that to other people before it was done to me, right? So even as, you know, I had friends who I wished to get different support from, mm. like, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't criticize anyone else mm. for doing exactly, well, not exactly. I think I was worse because I wanted to argue the point with people, mm -hmm. which to me, that was the worse reaction than mm -hmm. like needing the emotional support, <laughs> although that mm -hmm. also sucked. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but that was that was a, a big transition for me in my life of going from, you know, being a fairly uh theologically conservative christian mm. to and this is this is i mean what i say about things changed and things stayed the same mm. the things that pushed me to reexamine what i believed mm -hmm. were the values that i grew up with and was taught by my parents and by my church. So mm. it there's this kind of weird feeling for me, you know, to some extent, I feel like I kind of just took things to their logical conclusion. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's like, why, why didn't y'all come with me? Because <laughs> mm. I know you all care about this too, right? Yeah. And... Yeah, there's there's also I think a connection to, you know, I am a pretty much cis straight person, but um 
like I I do feel like to some extent like LGBTQIA issues are part of my faith journey because mm-hmm. that was one of the things that was so concerning to me about the faith that I was still holding on to mm-hmm. was like you know I feel like I have to say that this isn't right because that's what I it's hard to read it any other way mm. in scripture. And yet if you look to scripture, <laughs> if you look to the Christian scriptures um for an answer about whether slavery should exist mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. If you read the whole arc, you might be like, "Oh, it seems like, you know, the whole arc is trying to move us away from slavery existing." Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at specifics, it sure seems like slavery is fine and mm-hmm. and worse things. Um mm. so that I think that was one of the things that kind of pushed me and my spouse around like what what does it even mean for a christian scripture to have authority mm-hmm. if it can't help us answer this question well mm. <laughs> if if we feel like it's giving us an unethical answer and it it feels like mm. the ethical thing to do is to follow my heart and what i believe and the people that i care about mm. I mean, you ju- you're just not going to get that. You know, you can you can mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, you can kind of massage these things mm-hmm. to 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 be the way you want them to yeah. be, but that's not going to scripture looking for an answer. That's massaging scripture into the answer that you want. And I, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm sorry if that. I don't know how oh. <laughs> how any of this is hitting you right now, but but that was that was definitely part of my like faith journey and. As as hard as it was in so many ways to relinquish um, faith in an all powerful, all good, all knowing mm. God that you know all of the things right, mm. um, and that we have this you know book of scripture that like tells us the true truth and tells us that we're going to live forever and the world is going to be made better and fixed someday and all of that. And you know, that there is really this wonderful being that we can come to fully be in relationship with Mm. forever. It was, it was a huge loss to stop believing in those things and the way that I had believed them before. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, it was such a huge relief to be like, Oh my gosh, like I don't have to, I don't have to think these mean things anymore. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I'll say I am much more in a place of having my own center and my own Uh, I guess strength in who I am and what I believe and I think what I used to experience and what I still many times experience to this day is this fear of contagion Mm. this fear that if you a person who matters to me 
doesn't believe something, then I will one day not believe something. That you must be more right than I am. Hmm. And having this anxiety of having to defend God and having to defend what I believe. And that is just miserable. It's a miserable experience. It makes, Mm. um, it certainly makes, has made me very defensive and also just incredibly insecure and anxious. And I remember one day having this conversation, you know, with someone and they said something that made me really uncomfortable about belief. And I, I felt myself tensing up and, and wanting to be like, nope, no, like, mm. and I think I, I initially did that. And then I was realizing, one, this person is talking in hypotheticals. This is an idea. And two, even if it was something that they were saying, point blank, this is what this is, they can think that that's what that is. And I'm allowed to not think that that's what that is. And we can have a conversation and I can say fully what I believe in without any shame. Yeah. And they can not agree with me. And then we're fine. Yeah. And we're fine. Right. And yeah. that doesn't mean like people have impact on each other. You and I have impact on each other. Right. Absolutely. But like I'm allowed to feel something. Right. If, um, your loss of faith was sad to me. And I think I didn't want to feel maybe sad also, Mm. but I can be sad about something or be angry about something without needing to beat it into submission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's the idea of being two separate people that just because you believe something doesn't mean I have to. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that I learned too from being on that side of the experience is like so the person who is sharing that their faith has changed or some other part of their identity has changed with literally everyone in their life they shouldn't have to process everybody else's feelings about it right because first of all They're the one who's the most impacted in this situation, right? Like, they're going through it the hardest. Like, they're the ones who's actually changing. Mm. So, like, you know, (laughs) they're the ones who need the most support. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of this, like, idea of there being kind of, like, concentric circles of support. And you... Mm. You reach for -hmm. you reach for support from the people who are further out from the center of the thing than you are. So, Mm. like... You know, when I told friends about it, it would be great if they could have gone to their to other friends of theirs for emotional support rather than processing, you know, not not intentionally, but ending up like processing their feelings about it with me. (laughs) At least not initially, you know, like eventually, like I've had those conversations with people in a really good way. But Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, I mean. I'm very over this, like for my own story at this point. Like I'm I'm I totally get I, I totally get why people reacted that way and I, I don't hold it against anybody. Mm. Yeah. But it it's so painful in the moment. It was. It was, yeah. 
Right. But I, I mean, the other thing that I already said that I guess I want to like bring up again is that it's not just that I like feel forgiveness toward everyone who like had those feelings or those reactions to my faith change. But like, I guess I just want to say I, I feel genuinely grateful to you and the other members of the prayer group because even though it was painful for you guys to be around our faith radically changing and even though it was scary for you to be around that we were still like fully members of that group and you didn't make us feel like lesser or like you know like like the the group actually changed pretty significantly Mm -hmm. what it was to accommodate us because we were really fully part of the group and we mattered to the group as we were um and yeah like although it was hard for us to feel your pain about our pain about our faith change (laughs) like at the same time like you guys understood why we were grieving in a way that would was harder for like the the new people that we were meeting who were more liberal to understand mm. because we we mm. a lot of people who become who start out christian and become uh, stop being christian and become really like liberal they feel like good riddance when they leave and mm-hmm. we didn't feel that way at all <laughs> yeah well i got the sense from you that y- you were losing a part of yourself yeah you know you were in seminary and even without being in seminary Being a Christian, being in love with God and just passionate about that was such an integral part of you. And I think for you, yeah, it was losing a part of yourself. It was losing a friend. Mm -hmm. That's the sense that I got from you. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know how people talk about when they get told they only have like a year to live or something, it gives them a whole new perspective Mm -hmm. on life. I kind of had that experience (laughs) where I thought that I was going to live like literally forever. (laughs) And then I got told I only had like, you know, maybe if I was lucky, like 90 or 100 years to live and I like had that kind of reaction mm-hmm. of like holy shit like i'm going to mm-hmm. die <laughs> um yeah. so that was yeah there were like so many parts to that loss and there was so much there was so much grief um and also like what you were saying what i was saying before about things staying the same one of the things that i realized is that that spiritual connection that I had with this source of unconditional love Mm. I still had that experience 
that experience never changed for me throughout the entire process. I never felt abandoned by God. I just, what I thought God was changed. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, you've been sort of talking about, you know, this this loss and this sudden realization of limitation. Yeah. Being yeah. Yeah. How how has this journey affected how you think about how you connect with how you don't connect with your body? Mm. Uh, the thing that I said about being able to kind of release these things that I thought were like required by Christian scripture, but that didn't really fit with my own like internal sense of what's ethical. Mm. That that had a huge impact on the way that like my own relationship with my body in terms of like my own sense of sexual ethics. Mm. And I don't want to talk like super deeply about this, but for a very long time, for since I remember being cognizant of sexual pleasure being a thing as a teenager until around the time when this faith change happened. Like, I really was convinced that having sexual thoughts was, like, not only sinful, but probably, like, the worst sin that I engaged in. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, being able to stop taking, you know, the phrase, what is it? If you if you look at someone with a lustful with lust in your heart, mm -hmm. it's as bad as committing adultery or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like being able to just mm -hmm. like top stop taking that one phrase to its logical conclusion freed up so much like worry and anxiety and energy and like all of this really unproductive, you know energy in that in that area for me of like I remember um reading one of the Harry Potter books I think the sixth Harry Potter book where Harry Potter learns what is it called Leg legimency or whatever it is that like keeps people out of your yeah. mind and yeah. Snape teaches him to like envision like a brick wall and like rather than trying to not think about the things that you don't want to think about trying to think about a thing that it's okay to think about, you know? And mm. I, like, use that strategy. <laughs> like, mm. like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, like, this took up a lot of energy in my life. And to just be okay with being a sexual being um, and just not have to worry about God disapproving of what I may or may not think mm -hmm. about in the privacy of my own mind. Uh, mm. Hugely freeing. And like yeah. made space in my life to care about other things that matter so much more. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, and we've talked about this before. I have struggled with intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm 
so mm-hmm. much. And, you know, sexual thoughts being being one of them. And it, it was very much in this sort of attacking mm-hmm. form. And yeah, this idea that if I thought about something, it, that exact same verse, you know, that it was as bad as doing it. And of course, there's always this fun verses about like, it's better to like have cut this eye out than to like leave it in if you've sinned with uh, it, you know, stuff like that. And that just leads to, um, I mean, there's, what is it called? Scru- scrupulosity. I think I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's in OCD and it's the, um, like the, the fear of committing blasphemy mm-hmm. or, or like having these religious, um, like very religious preoccupation and fear huh. of endangering yourself in some way. And I, blas- you know, blasphemy is part of it. Yeah. And, you know, that's been improving. That's been improving in a lot of ways. You know, I still experience that. But I remember that I've had the language of, what is it, like of looking inward or like basically like thinking too much about yourself or looking too much like into yourself as being sinful. Mm-hmm. And I've thought, well, I've ha- like, I've done so much of that because because all my bandwidth has been spent on trying to not do right. these things and to obsessively think about it. And so it has made it so that I can't look upright and just do shit. And, you know, all that time wasted on, uh, like, am I allowed to like, well, I'm such a horrible person cause I'm queer. So I'm such a horrible person cause I have mm-hmm. sexual thoughts, all these things it means that that I'm just curled up on myself and I can't because I can't take care of myself because I can't forgive myself yeah. or accept myself I can't actually connect with other wow. people and I can't be helpful you like there's a reason I couldn't continue on in my mental health job because I was disintegrating mm-hmm. right so I have a lot of feelings about yeah. that and of course, like, you don't want to use that argument for, like, there are things that we should not do that are harmful, right, to ourselves and to others, so. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm not saying there aren't any yeah. types of ways of thinking about other people, even in the privacy of your own head, that couldn't be harmful. But, but, yeah. but like, the the place where I was drawing the line was, like any way of envisioning or experiencing sexuality mm. almost at all. Yeah. That's not healthy. <laughs> no. No. That is bondage. Mm. Yeah. Um and I think another another piece of where like my theology impacted my relationship with my body is in the valuing of self-sacrifice for the sake Mm. of self-sacrifice. I think especially as a person who is like a woman um, and raised Mm. as a woman uh, Mm -hmm. by a mother who really thought it was good and important to be self-sacrificial and that that was part of what it meant to be a good mother. 
And I think this also ties, this actually ties in with the limitedness versus unlimitedness of Mm. sort of your eternal soul. Because Mm -hmm. if you are actually going to live forever, it's not that much of a hardship to be self-sacrificial for a hundred years. However, (laughs) if you just have, you know, however many years you have, and probably not, you know, maybe like 80 or 90 if you're lucky, Mm. it is a pretty big hardship to be self-sacrificial all the time. Mm. And so that, that was like something that really changed for me. Because I think I had had this idea that, you know, I should pursue justice and I should pursue Jesus, you know, single-mindedly and with, like, total devotion. And Mm. (laughs) realizing that this life was it Mm. and both that this life is it and also that... Many, 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 many people have worked very, 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 very hard over many millennia to get the world to be as livable as it is now for me and others. Mm. I mean, there's so many problems still, and I am extremely privileged. And yet, Mm. like, that isn't bad, right? What's bad is that there's not not more freedom and more, like... Mm well-being in the world but like having well-being is good (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like at what point are we gonna be if every generation is just like oh the world is crap like we have to spend all of our energy on fixing it at what point is it enough it seems disrespectful of the generations that came before to not enjoy life as it is now Mm. And also not to say that everything is always getting better, but I would way rather live today than a hundred years ago. 100%. Yes. Yeah. No, no uh, backwards time travel for me. No, thank you. Yeah. And so that, that had a big impact on my relationship with my body too, because, you know, all of a sudden my body aging like matters and my body Mm enjoying life and experiencing pleasure matters Mm. and my body suffering matters Mm. I think I've taken a lot of time in my life really strongly believing in the princess bride line life is pain Mm. Mm. what is it life is pain anyone who says differently is selling something selling something yeah and and yeah, growing up very much with the idea that you should be suffering and if you're comfortable or or feeling good that or, you, like you kind of shouldn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's something mm-hmm. wrong. And, you know, I have this belief that life contains suffering and pain. It, it, you're going to experience it. You know, with my belief in the world, the way that it is now, you're going to experience it. That doesn't mean that you should seek after it. (laughs) Yeah. Or or that you, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not like you are allowed uh, and, and free and, you know, please do this to 
work on ways of reducing that for yourself and for other people. Right. With the, you know, the realistic understanding that, like, so uh, I'm someone who has chronic pain. I'm probably always going to have a certain amount of pain, but I'm going to head towards trying to reduce the pain and, and perhaps even I can eliminate that kind of pain. I'm probably, but we're always going to have some right. sort of pain in our body in the, in this, you know, in this world that we live in, in this life, that's the way it's going to be. And if you, especially if you believe that this is the world and the life that you have, period. Yeah. You're, I don't know what I was going to say then. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. It just, it makes, like, there's no, there's no later, right? There's no, like, oh, you know, I'll get to experience plenty of good stuff later on after I die. It's like, well, mm. this is it, you know? Probably. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not committed to the idea that there's definitely nothing after this, but I'm certainly not counting on it. And I do notice that you you spend quite a bit of your life, you do, you are working on making those community connections, connections to the earth and working towards making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. It's just, you're also taking care of yourself. Right. <laughs> and that's become like a lot more important to me, I think. Mm -hmm. And having, like considering myself as, one of the people that I care about you know if I care about people I should also care about myself mm -hmm. and and I think there's there's something about not being like fully satisfied with the world how it is because I don't I don't think we should mm -hmm. <laughs> accept the way the world is now but at the same time mm -hmm. being able to appreciate the world as it is and like I don't know, having room for gratitude and mm. having not always trying to do more of everything <laughs> like, mm. but being able to say this is enough. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> contentment. What? <laughs> yeah. Contentment. That's the word that I'm looking for. Yeah. Contentment. Mm. Um, and like, like like I said, like I, there's never, I don't think the world is ever going to reach like a complete state, uh, except maybe mm. with the heat death of the universe, but that's not a complete state that we want. Um, so, mm. you know, there's no, there's no perfect, there's no complete. Um, and so there's, there's like never going to be a point where we can just like stop and all catch our breaths and, you know, just be like, oh, mm. we're done, you know? So that means that we have to enjoy ourselves along the way. <laughs> mm. Otherwise, no one's ever going to enjoy anything. That's dumb. Mm. Yeah, the, the importance of having fun. Mm -hmm. I remember when I, you know, I started to do boxing lessons for for my health, not just physically, but emotionally, like embodiment, all this stuff, very serious and what I did not expect to find was fun mm. and that it was fun. And yeah, it's important. Yeah. It's important to have fun. It's important to be silly and have space to 
enjoy yourself. And that deeply does impact the way that your body feels. Like if you are just working really hard and just surviving all the mm-hmm. time, your body is going to affect, like it's going to experience the physical ramifications of stress mm-hmm. and trauma, mm-hmm. which will not only affect your body, but affect the the next generations. Right. Like we, we know right. that now. Right, right. Yeah. The uh the piece around self-sacrificialness. There's like two more pieces of it that we haven't talked about yet. One is theology of Jesus' death. Uh <laughs> and I I don't really identify as a UU Christian anymore. I identify as a mystic naturalist UU with Christian roots. But mm. to the extent that I have a theology of Jesus' death and sort of how how Jesus saves people, I guess. Mm. Using the term saving really loosely because I don't believe in hell. Mm. I think that it was Jesus' teachings and his courage to be willing to continue to teach those things, knowing that he was risking death. To me, that mm. is like what is what is to be celebrated. Mm. It's not the gruesome death. It's it's the courage to risk like self-sacrifice. Mm. It's not like an intentional self-sacrifice that is like praiseworthy to me. Mm. And that's a, mm. a kind of a fine distinction, but I, to me, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Mm. I I know for me, my belief in, in Jesus' death and, and resurrection is, has been changing and uh, I knew that it needed to change um, one for my addiction mm-hmm. recovery to mm-hmm. happen and, and two for my, men- you know, my mental health recovery. I could no longer continue to have this belief that God was this petulant and wrathful uh, god who needed blood Mm -hmm. in order to stand being with us right which also to me i find to be a very weak god if you Mm -hmm. cannot bear to be around your creation (laughs) that is flawed and Instead, like I've been sort of very much looking at it as Jesus' death is a sacrifice to humanity. Like it is a very human thing to do to kill someone. Mm. It is, you know, that is the the wrath being satisfied. Mm. Hmm. Oh. 
So like Jesus wasn't sacrificed to God. Jesus was sacrificed to humanity. Humanity. I think oh. there's also a belief of like a sacrifice to Satan. Um, I, I'm open. Like I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not married to one exact thing, but. This- right. But just not sacrifice to God. Like that wasn't a sacrifice yeah. that God wanted or needed. Right. And I believe it was a, it was actually a YouTube video made by an Orthodox priest where he says, you know, it, it's not that that God has turned their face away and we need God to turn their face back. It's that we keep turning away and God keeps like turning towards us, like always, 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 always. Anyway, I have a lot of things I could say yeah, about yeah. that. Anyway, but um, all that to say, you know, you and I don't have the same beliefs about the implications of the death, but I think that you and I are in this place of yeah. our theology has changed, I guess, for our theology has changed. I guess I'll just yeah. say that. I don't think I have a statement to say afterwards. Yeah. And I like, I also don't want to. I think the way that I tell my story, it kind of sounds like I think that to have the kind of, to have certain beliefs that I have, like I had to leave Christianity behind. I don't think that's Mm. true. There's Mm. a lot of lovely liberal Christian places to be. Um, Mm. But for me, that was, that was just where my journey ended up taking me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I always love the word mystical mysticism yeah Yeah, that's that for me that's that like experience of love Mm. just limitless love available Mm. Mm -hmm. so the world and we are finite (laughs) but love is not yeah i like that Mm. the uh the other piece around self-sacrifice that we'll get a little bit more into the body which i think is what we're supposed to be talking about (laughs) all of this all of this has been relating to that but go go for it yeah uh is people talk about having children as being selfless and not having children as being selfish and people there's also a perception Mm -hmm. of having children as being selfish and not having children as being selfless. It, it's, it absolutely cuts both ways. Mm. And mm. Uh, when my spouse and I were deciding for sure, like we we always thought that we wanted kids, but as we were getting closer to like actually pulling the trigger on that, uh, I felt really, I felt like my desire to have like our own, like biological children was really mm. selfish. Mm. And so I kind of had to I mean it's also right it's it's selfish and it's so hard, right? Like there's a lot of it's it's just like this weird both and uh, uh. but yeah, I kind of there was there's like a lot of struggle for me of like well, you know, we're bringing additional people into a world that already has, like, a lot of people. We're spending Mm -hmm. our time and resources on, like, people who are related to us and, like, people that we brought into existence instead of, like, people who are already in existence and might 
be able to mm-hmm. use some of that time and energy or mm-hmm. be in more need of it since they already exist. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I guess two things like the desire, the decision to like have children um, was deeply saying yes to myself and how I see myself and what mm-hmm. a thing that I wanted, mm-hmm. even if it didn't feel like the most efficient use of my life <laughs> for like the common mm-hmm. good or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it was, yeah, for me, it was like, okay, like the fact that I want to have a child who is related to me and my spouse mm. matters and I'm allowed to want that mm. and I'm allowed to do that. Mm. And I mean, if I deny that to myself, then first of all, people got to keep, keep on procreating like in general, like it's, mm. it's like, you know, there are mm. all these like ideas about how we could have, a non-growth based economy and that stuff's all really interesting, but we haven't really figured out how to do it yet. And Mm. we're going to be in some trouble if people don't keep on having kids that we don't know how to do Mm -hmm. not do that right now and keep society going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's, there is value to that, Mm. but also just like, yeah, this is this is a thing that I've wanted from life for a very long time. I mean, since I was a child and that matters too. <laughs> like not just what is the most efficient way to use my life for making the world a better place. Yeah, you've wanted to I, I believe wanted to specifically be yeah. a mother. Yeah, it was is interesting like People have asked me a couple of times, like, you know, how has this, like, transition to, like, having a different, you know, adding this piece to your identity of, like, being a mother, how has that impacted Mm -hmm. you? Or, like, how has that been for you? And for me, it's just been this, like, oh, like, thank goodness I'm finally a mother because (laughs) I always identified mm-hmm. as a mother and now I, now I actually am one mm-hmm. like mm. it's kind of it's kind of weird actually I guess that I like identified as being a future mother <laughs> mm. for most of my life mm. <laughs> I, I don't know if this feels true to you but what I'll say is that you had already been mothering people mm. for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's different. Yeah. It's different to have a child. Yeah. It's different to have a biological yeah. child. But I think you'd already been doing that. Yeah, you're right. I don't know that I would have said that, but that is very true. Yeah. That's yeah, that's just deeply like a part of who I am. And so it's been very affirming to my identity 
to like have my own child who I can like have a little more control over other parts of the, you know like more parts of mm. their life you know like you know as you mm. I don't know give mothering care toward people in your life you know it's like you can only be so involved in their life and obviously you know with a kid as they grow up you can only be so involved in their life too but it's just like I mean and of course like I'll make all kinds of mistakes and you know I'm not Mm going to be a perfect parent but there's something like deeply satisfying about (laughs) like getting to make those mistakes yourself (laughs) instead of Mm. like seeing how people that you care about are have already been and continue to be harmed by people and you just don't have any control over any of that Mm. i find the the use of the word control (laughs) so so fascinating because i know i know that you had certain ideas about how birth and how Mm, breastfeeding would go yeah and it didn't no, go it didn't. that way. It didn't. <laughs> so there's, a, you know, there's also like, yeah, a losing of control too. Yeah, control is an interesting word. Because you, you wanted to have a natural childbirth. I don't actually remember if you wanted to have it in your home or not. Was that? Yeah, I mean, I... I don't love the like phrase natural childbirth, but um, I did. I didn't want to like have an epidural and all the things that went with that unless I needed one. Yeah. But right. I did need one. <laughs> yeah. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting to have because my labor was from the wee hours of a Saturday morning until like 6 p.m. on Monday and so the part of that where I had an epidural was from I don't know 7 a.m Monday morning until so there is like a long and you know it wasn't I don't even know how to define like what part of my labor I was in because but I was in labor that was painful enough that I needed support from other people to get through the waves of it um for yeah a very long time (laughs) multiple days and then and then after doing that for like until I was like totally tired out from it then I got an epidural um and so then I got to experience that side of it and there are some really Mm -hmm. nice things about that like felt way better (laughs) But there are also some really frustrating parts. Did you have a C-section? No, I didn't. I just had an epidural. No, no. Yeah. Okay. They're really frustrating parts. Sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. Uh, Like, I wanted to be able to move around because that's very helpful for, like, keeping your labor going, which, you know, was important since I had been in labor for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they don't design any of their equipment with the assumption that people might want to move around at all. They mm. had a two monitors. There there are a number of cords that had to be attached to me. There was the IV, there was the uh epidural, which is like it's kind of like an IV that goes into your spine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there were two monitors 
maybe there was something else. At some point, there was something else, too. Uh, but yeah, two monitors on my belly, one for to measure my contractions, one to measure baby's heartbeat. I didn't have to have any of these things on me before I got the ep- epidural. <laughs> so mm. that's like one, two, three, four cords. Um, mm. And then the monitors, they're shaped like a hockey puck. Uh, including being flat on the bottom, like a hockey puck. And there's, mm-hmm. like, they have to put gel on it between the hockey puck and your belly. And then mm-hmm. they just use, like, these two, like, little spindly elastic straps to try and keep them on. And so, like, the only way that you can really keep them in place is by just, like, lying there on your back, basically. Mm. Otherwise, it's constantly, like, moving out of place. And then every time that they, like, lose uh, the the signal for the baby's heartbeat, they kind of react as though the baby's heart has possibly stopped beating, which is so Mm. unlikely. And anyway, it's, it creates a lot of anxiety and I wanted to be able to move around and birth in whatever position Mm. I wanted to. And anyway, so that was, there was like a lot of, you know, (laughs) I think, I think some of the hospital staff were probably a little frustrated by me, too, because that's just not what they're used to. And they, you know, uh, but it seems like they should have been because it was a practice that had midwives. So anyway, uh, mm. so there, but but, you know, there there's some things that were really great. Anesthesiologists were amazing. They came in multiple times to, like, adjust the epidural up and down. Which I've heard all these horror stories of like people not even being able to get an epidural on time, much less like getting to like adjust up and down mm-hmm. gradations of like how much they're getting through it. Yeah. So that was awesome because I was able to like squat and do all kinds of things that you frequently can't mm-hmm. do if you that I wouldn't have been able to do if it had been turned up higher. But then once the pain got yeah. more, I was able to have them. <laughs> turned it up a little yeah. bit too so yeah it, it's strange because there are certain parts of this process that sound like so like nicely done and like yeah you know, oh wow we can do that now and then other parts where i'm like right what is this just like a rubber band town right. like what right. <laughs> right yeah no it's and it's just like and there's a part of me that's just like so frustrated that there are a lot of things around pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, and and young children that just aren't studied very much. Mm. Like, the worst example. No one really knows how long you can leave breast milk. Like, how long breast milk is good for after it's been pumped. Like, no one's really mm. ever studied this. People have studied, you know, like other kinds of food uh, safety things. And so they Mm -hmm. basically just apply the most stringent food safety standards to breast milk, even though there are significantly good reasons why we should expect breast milk to last, like freshly pumped breast milk to last a lot longer than like store-bought cow's milk or something like that. Mm -hmm. But like no one's ever tested it. So, so like, there are all these people who spend their time and energy and, like, the calories from their body <laughs> and mm. the pain 
all the pain mm-hmm. that goes into like pumping and stuff for a lot of people uh, to like produce this milk, which they then are end up getting told that they have to throw away large portions of uh, because we're not. No one has bothered to study this more closely. And I know for you, you had a lot of pain issues with attempting to breastfeed. Yeah. And that was why I ended up stopping. So that was, yeah, that was really, um, yeah, I thought I was going to be like such a crunchy (laughs) breastfeeding mom. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, no, Mm -hmm. I, I breastfed my child for about a month and a half. And then I started weaning him because it was it was too painful. Um, he had some problems with the way that he was sucking um, because mm-hmm. he had tongue and lip tie. And while we got that mm-hmm. corrected, which was, oh, my gosh, such a pain. And they, they make you do these stretches in his, his little tiny baby oh, mouth. Oh, it's really painful, I've heard. Yeah. I don't know if it's painful, but he certainly hated it. <laughs> and j- we had to do it multiple times every single day for mm-hmm. weeks. It was awful. Um, so we went through all of that for him to still not suck correctly. Uh, so that caused pain. And then the other piece that caused pain, which I had no idea anything about this until my doula suggested this might be a possible thing. So mm. there's a condition called Renaud's, which... If you have it, a lot of times your extremities don't get good circulation when they're cold. Mm. It's basically Mm -hmm. like there's an extent to which you want your body to withhold circulation from your extremities when you get very, very, very cold so that, you know, you don't die of hypothermia. But you but when you have Renaud's like your body does that earlier than it should. Um, Mm. And turns out a lot of people have Renaud's. It's not uncommon. Turns out a lot Mm. of you know, people who try to breastfeed, if they have Renaud's, it causes a lot of pain because your nipple is like, Mm -hmm. goes from being like in a warm, wet mouth to being like out in the air exposed and like wet still. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so that was causing like a lot of pain too. And I don't know, there, there's something else too that made the, like the pumping more painful than it might otherwise have been. So there's just like a lot of things that made it bad. (laughs) And it was just, yeah, it was just like to a point where I was needing to massage my jaw like all the time Mm -hmm. because I was getting headaches and I was having like really intense like jaw pain because I was clenching my teeth and clenching and grinding my teeth so much because I was in so much pain. Mm. Yeah. And it, And it also was horrible because my child was getting enough to eat, but he wasn't getting as much as he wanted to eat. He was, he was consistently going from very hungry to a little bit hungry when he would feed. So he was always a little bit hungry. So of course he was much fussier than he would have been. Yeah. Like looking back on it now, I'm just like, oh, like... (sighs) It just seems like a horrible way to like exist for the first like month and a half of your life to like always be a little bit hungry. Mm-hmm. And 
I think this this is like part of this like narrative of like women being self-sacrificial and like Mm -hmm. breastfeeding being the perfect food and your body you know does exactly Mm -hmm. what the baby needs and I think the piece that's really (laughs) the thing that's so interesting about that narrative is I think it comes from this philosophy of of course women are self-sacrificial. Of course women's bodies are self-sacrificial. Like, of course, you know, pregnant mm-hmm. people, you know, who ha- who give birth to children, their bodies are going to do everything possible for this baby. When biologically mm-hmm. that's actually not true, right? There's a balance. There mm-hmm. is a, there are some things that are good for both the pregnant person and the baby. And there are some things that are better for the baby and worse for the pregnant person. And there's some things better for the pregnant person, worse for the baby. And it's, mm. I mean, evolution can't, has to, has to care about both. Yeah. And so, and there's, there's always going to be things where you have to like have some kind of compromise. And so to say mm. that breastfeeding is the perfect food, you know, produced, you know, in synchrony for your baby, it's like, well... Breastfeeding is a compromise, right, between what the baby needs and what the breastfeeding person needs. It's not, you know, and and there's going to be variation, right? Like some people are going to produce lots of milk because their genes would do really well in a time of plenty, right? Like no need to worry about conserving energy. There's tons of food. It's going to be fine. But then you're going to want to have variation in your population where you have some people who, yeah, their babies are always going to be a little bit hungry, but, you know, they're not wasting precious calories on turning mm. turning food into breast milk that's not needed. That's mm. not absolutely needed in time of scarcity. So you're just going to have just like, you know, people people's bodies yeah. are different, right? Like some people's bodies are like, oh, my gosh, there's like enough food. Like, let's store up some fat right now immediately, you know, while we yeah. still can. And some people's bodies are like. <laughs> oh, food is plentiful, like, let's not care and just, like, never store it up, no matter what. Yeah. So I think that, Mm. yeah, and there's just, like, so many pieces about that where it's, like, there's just, like, this assumption that, like, mothers have to be self-sacrificial, and it's, like, well, I mean, even biology doesn't really totally work that way. It does to some extent. You know, there's some some amount of self-sacrifice for sure. In parenting, obviously, yeah. but it it shouldn't be total self sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even if you just want to focus on the child completely, it's not going to work well for the child if the parent is not doing right. well. Yeah, and like. Yeah, so anyway, this this idea that, like, breast milk is, like, definitely so much better than formula, it's like, well, here's the advantage of formula. It's not a compromise. It's not a compromise, mm-hmm. right? Like, in, I mean, it is if you're, like, you wanted to breastfeed and then you, like, compromise and feed formula instead. But, like, right. formula is the best thing that we have figured out how to manufacture for babies to eat. It's yeah. not... You know, and it, I mean, I guess there's a compromise in terms of maybe you can buy more or less expensive formula or something, but. And the water quality you have. 
Well, yeah, that's definitely true. And there's, yeah. there's like you say, like there's contexts where, you know, you know, you definitely don't want to be formula feeding with dirty water or formula feeding with yeah. diluted formula because you can't afford mm. enough formula or things like that. That's really, really bad. But yeah, I mean, formula has gone a long way and I think there's there's always going to peop- be people who think that it's better to do things the like more natural way, but at some point, like I don't know, things get better. Like like with epidurals, right? Where it's like I'm like, oh, I don't know which I like better. Like there's advantages to each, but like a lot of people really mm-hmm. like epidurals, and it's really good that we have them. And mm-hmm. it's also really good that people can choose to not have epidurals, like both ways. Yeah, but. But the thing that I don't like about epidurals is not that they reduce the amount of pain that you experience. <laughs> mm. what, what is it that you like about them? Oh, no, that is the thing that I like about them. But that's not the thing that I don't like about them, right? Oh, that is the thing. Okay, there we go. Yeah. You know, I I totally understand the move towards going to what is more natural you know, and, and things like that. And I know, for instance, like in America, there's far more C-sections, far more planned mm-hmm. C-sections um, than uh, there at least used to be uh, than than other mm-hmm. places. And also a pretty, for, for a first world country, a pretty bad sort of mortality rate for the first year of life yeah. of a child. Um and I think a lot of that is is due to like racism. <laughs> racism is a big thing. That's a big part of it. Racism, poverty, yeah. but yeah, inequality. Anyway, but um, yeah, this is this isn't a fact based podcast, but I just yeah, like I, I am aware of the when we've gone over medicalized, yeah. right? Absolutely. And, you know, but you know what? Uh, It is helpful to have these things when other things don't work. Like when, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, women and a lot of babies used to die. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, Mm. and like, you know, it's not like you should have to prove that you've done everything you possibly can to breastfeed before it's okay to feed formula too. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you can just, you know, there are studies that say, oh, it's probably better, you know, in general to do this, but a lot Mm -hmm. of them are, they're probably not controlling very well for things that are correlated with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So in a country where people are told, the best thing you can do for your child is breastfeed them. Mm. It's the people who have the time and energy to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. They're going to have a lot of other things going for them. And so are their kids. And so when we say things like, oh yes, breastfeeding is linked to like all of these like long-term outcomes. It's like, well, is that a randomized Mm. controlled trial? (laughs) Because if not, I'm pretty sure breastfeeding is just like correlated you know, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that that's causation and not just correlation. Mm. 
but and yet there's all of this push to be like oh like we have to we have to get more women to breastfeed we have to get you know we have to educate women about the benefits of breastfeeding it's like oh yeah that's definitely what the problem is mm. it's not it's not that like you know people don't have equal access to the resources that they need to care for their children. Mm. It makes me really angry, like, things. And we have this program called Celebrate One in the city where I live that's about, you know, trying to reduce infant mortality, which is a good thing. But a lot of it is around, like, putting up these billboards and, like, doing other, like, public education stuff about having Mm. babies, you know... Reducing SIDS risks by having children sleep on their back alone in a crib. Mm. I just think it's really insulting to assume that the reason that we have a high infant mortality rate is that parents, like, don't know Mm. how to prevent SIDS. Like, parents are making the best decisions. I mean, obviously there's you know some parents are i guess abusive toward their toward their children and that is a thing but like in general like parents are making the best decisions that they are able to make for their children and you know like when parents are exhausted because they have to work multiple jobs Mm -hmm. to make ends meet because we don't have good social support in our city or our country like that is the kind of thing that leads to like exhaustion can lead to like less careful behavior because you can't be mm-hmm. as careful when you're exhausted. And, yeah. Just the the idea that like, yeah, the, the way that we solve this is by making people do more things, convincing people to do more things, convincing mm. parents to do a better job parenting. It just yeah. kind of pisses me off. And I'm not saying there's no place for that because, you know, one of the things that's problematic about how isolated families tend to be now is that people often don't mm-hmm. get any experience taking care of children until they have mm-hmm. their own, you know. But but I just, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that just really rubs me the wrong way around how people think change mm-hmm. needs to be made to you know, improve infant mortality or things like that. It's like, you know, the infant mortality is much, much worse for black infants than for white Mm -hmm. infants. So it's like, so then if you think that the way to solve that is through like education, Mm -hmm. what does that imply? Right? Like you're, you're, you're trying to treat racism by like telling black people to do Mm -hmm. more to protect themselves again. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah. So anyway, uh, but there's there's just like I've run into. I think part of why that rubs me so so the wrong way is because there is just so there's so many things that you get told as a person who's pregnant, a person who has a young child that you have to do for the well being of the child, and people don't tell you why you have to do those things. They mm. just tell you that you have to do them. And they don't tell you which things are the most important to do 
they just tell you they they act like all of the things are equally important yeah and all of them are required and that for one is like infantilizing Mm. (laughs) to be like you can't be trusted to make your own Mm. health decisions (laughs) basically um you can't be trusted to know what's in your own best interest but like the list of things is nearly infinite the 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 more you look for the list of things that you have to do the longer the list will get and no one can do all of the things perfectly so you mm-hmm. have to pick and choose and the way that things are presented is is never like cost benefit analysis like here you know here's the mm-hmm. pros of doing it this way here's the cons like you're going to have to decide based on your own situation whether it's worth it to you to do this or not yeah yeah, so often the way that these things are presented is in an idealized situation. And Right. Yeah, we don't we don't live in the idealized situation. And I I think this is often true in religious circles as well of like um don't don't sin. And you know, I'm certainly right. not promoting sinning, doing, you know, doing harmful things, things like that. But what I have understood is I already live in the the um with religious language, a fallen world, a broken world. I already live in the non-ideal situation. Meaning that I can't do everything ideally, you know, right. I, right. I'm going to have to do like the best that is possible or, or even like, right. Yeah. Like understanding that I'm going to make mistakes and that, that I can't obsess over trying to do something perfectly because that's just going to mean that I don't make a decision and that I don't actually do something. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you watched The Good Place? I have watched The Good Place. Have you watched? You've watched like a lot of The Good Place. Like- I've watched all of The Good Place. Okay. Cool. So, um, yeah, that that like. You know how there's this thing in The Good Place about how now that the world is, mm. like, more interconnected, which I think this was always true, mm. but maybe people are aware of it more. Like, basically, no one can mm. make it to The Good Place anymore because, like, everything that everyone does always has, like, negative impacts on other people. And those, like, mm. negative impacts, like, add up. And then, like, anyway, mm. so I, I just thought... Like, it kind of, like, reminds me of this where it's, like, there's just, like, there's so many things that you're supposed to do. And I feel like this, that, Mm. I don't know, that connects for me with the the piece around, like, you know, taking these words of Jesus to their, like, logical conclusions of, like, you know, cut out your eye if it causes you to sin. And, like, if you even have a thought in your heart, it's, like, the same exact Mm. thing as if you, like, did that action. Um, those like really extreme measures where it's like you can just never 
be good enough and you have to like spend all of your time like mm. worrying over how to like avoid sin yeah instead of realizing that these were spoken in a context where thoughts were not thought about at all you know right right it's a hyperbole it's 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 a hyperbole and it's it's like you think you're all high and mighty you think mm-hmm. that uh, you were talking about earlier about the the idea of judgmentalism mm. you think you're so good but have you thought about this other thing mm-hmm. uh anyway yeah 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 as we so we're nearing the end there's sort of two last things that i ask and one of them is well i think i think i probably already know the answer to this we've talked some but what are ways that you really have enjoyed your body or have had deep sort of positive connection with your body mm. Yeah. When I was pregnant uh, with my child, I had a lot of bad pregnancy symptoms, even though Mm. it was like a very healthy, good pregnancy and like Mm. medically, but I had a lot of really uncomfortable Mm. and painful pregnancy symptoms. And it really made me appreciate Mm. what my body is like when it's not pregnant. Mm. I I kept like being like I can't wait to get my body back not in that like kind of uh you know oh I want to like lose all this weight kind of way but in like a I want to be able to walk more than for more than 2 minutes without pain. Mm-hmm. I want to not constantly feel nauseous. Mm-hmm. I want to get my level of energy back where it was before and it mm-hmm. it was I actually being pregnant made me realize that I'm actually kind of an athletic person, even though I've never thought of myself. I've never thought of myself as athletic before. You didn't know that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I kind of had that ground out of me as a child in gym class because mm. for some reason, no one really taught me how to catch and throw balls. And oh, so I see in that way, every single sport in gym class, I was horrible at. And so I never tried to get better at it because it just, it was, there was like so much shame around it for me. Mm. It's interesting to me. Like I, I get what you're saying. Cause you're thinking specifically of like sports and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. But I remember before you were dating your your current spouse you broke off a relationship or like maybe just like the beginnings of a relationship because you realized that act, like being active was really important to you and it wasn't yeah. important to this other person right right and that that was something that you needed to think about right oh that's true yeah. I, somehow that never translated mm. in my mind as athletic. And maybe part of it, too, is just like being in my 30s mm. and like still doing active stuff. Like I'm not in school anymore, mm. but I'm still like rock climbing and going for runs and things. And I don't know, like people do different 
so like I don't know in yeah. in the pool of people who are my age I'm mm. like I feel more athletic than I did when I was you know like a teenager mm-hmm. right I was compared to my peers I was not very athletic mm. I felt mm-hmm. like for the most part but anyway so yeah so I think that that feeling of like realizing like oh my gosh like I didn't even know how useful my body like was and how much I enjoyed like being Mm. able to do things like park far away in cheap parking Mm. or free parking and then just like walk to a place where I wanted to go Mm. it's like suddenly like I just couldn't do things like that yeah and it like so on one hand it made me really appreciate the capacities that I had before I was pregnant and that Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to have again after being pregnant Mm -hmm. and that I am realizing I will not always have Mm -hmm. if I'm lucky enough to live to a point where I, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it also made me realize that I need to cut myself a lot of breaks. Mm. Like a lot of things that I've been like, no, like, don't drive to this thing because you could bike or like, Hmm. don't, don't like, you know, park far away where there's free parking. Don't spend money on, you know, whatever. Or like, Hmm. you know, you should be doing whatever the, yeah, least expensive, most environmentally friendly, whatever, whatever, whatever thing. You always have to make like the choice that's the furthest on that spectrum that you can possibly Hmm. do. Um, And just like realizing like, wow, that I, I just can't do those things. And if I, maybe I could, if I spent all of my time and energy on that, but I want to spend all my time and energy on that. Mm. And it just like, I, I knew, I know that I am a pretty high energy person, <laughs> but somehow I hadn't really like connected some of those dots of like, oh yeah, like some people have less energy than I do all the time. Mm. <laughs> or some people have less, you know, ability to like walk from place to place than I do all the time. And like, I don't know, like cutting myself a break, mm. I feel like, <laughs> and realizing that I needed to cut myself many, many breaks. And also like just kind of getting out of like, I don't know, like, it doesn't need to be thought of even as cutting myself a break, just mm. making a different choice because I choose to. Mm. Not everything has to be measured against, you know, this standard. You can just do things. Yeah, I. this is bringing to mind a couple things. One was the idea when you were talking about um, with Snape, like the envisioning of a brick wall. Uh-huh. And, and also, you know, those... Yeah, that that walling up of like all of these rules and and uh, legalism. Yeah, that that we so often just think about in fundamental. Uh, let me right. not use that word in religious spaces. Right, right. But that you have a lot of these, both in your past religious experience but also in your environmental rules and your community rules or like whatever rules that you've made for yourself and that now you are like oh I I can I need more space this is claustrophobic (laughs) yeah yeah I've I've heard it said that um conservatives like care about purity and liberals don't 
Mm. I don't think that's actually Mm-mm. true. Mm-mm. I think that there's different types of purity. Yes. <laughs> that liberals care about. But yeah, I think all of us could, aff- well, not, I mean, I think there's a lot of different types of purity that you can care about and everyone who cares about them could probably afford to take a bit of a chill pill, mm. <laughs> especially myself. Mm. Mm. And then the last thing is that I, yeah. Is there anything else that you really want to say? Uh, either that you just want to talk about or that you want to say to listeners before we end. One thing that was really interesting experience with having a child um, and like birthing a child uh, is like this at this, you know, even from, you know, the very beginning, you know, they have their own DNA, Mm. you know, they're not part of your body. Mm-hmm. but they're also kind of part of your body mm-hmm. and this like and even like as a child you know after they're born like the they're so like dependent mm-hmm. on other people and you know so it gets so attached to their primary caregivers you know it's mm-hmm. like parents of young children make a lot of jokes about whether you ever get to go to the bathroom by yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and things like that it's no joke <laughs> it's no joke and uh yeah there's just something really profound about all of that experience that I I still like think about and wonder about and I just remember the experience of as my child was like crowning Mm -hmm. uh while I was like in the midst of birth like reaching down and feeling his head come out Mm -hmm. and the experience of touching his head and not being able to get like tactical feedback myself Mm. of like, like this is like this, Mm. my body, but not my body, like Mm. inside my body and made of flesh Mm. and like warm with like the heat of my body. Mm. But like, I I I can only feel what my fingers feel. I don't feel like mm-hmm. <laughs> the 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 sensation of my fingers touching that skin because it's not my skin. It's like it's my it's my child's skin. It, just like remembering like that that like really surreal feeling. And also like soon after he was born, you know, like, you know, holding him and being like I feel like I should just having this like weird feeling that I should be able to feel what my child was feeling because it just mm. we were so like intimately connected it felt like mm-hmm. I should be able to feel his sensations but I couldn't mm. Mm. I don't I don't know there's not really anything like to say about that other than just it's just profound like how all of us were in someone else's body Mm. at one point mm. with all of the I don't know it's it's just I it's still unbelievable to me that lives begin and lives end mm. 
Mm. Yeah, I think again that idea of limitations comes up. Yeah. Life and death and limitation, like there's a cutoff point suddenly. Right. Right. Between you and this other person. Right. And you were kind of one person, but not really, like, for a while. Yeah. You know. Kind of. And also kind of not. But then, but the thing that's so interesting is that, like, when my child was in my womb, I had this connection and this, um, like, I, I had bonded with him before he was born, mm. but I didn't know him. Mm. at all I didn't know anything about him mm. and it wasn't until he came out of my body and we could be separate mm. that I was able to get to know him mm. yeah earlier I was saying you know talking about that problem that, that I've had and that many people have of if something's happening to someone else it's also happening to me or it affects me in this way that is like we're one person mm -hmm. and that recognizing that we are different yeah is really helpful to both parties yeah so it's just yeah it's making me think of that differentiation and you know that i'm sure that's something that you're going to probably continue to like wrestle with you know yeah. with having a child yeah. but like yeah. The ability to recognize that so early, mm. I think, is a beautiful, bizarre thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think that's where we have to end it. But thank you so much for joining me in this. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast this was a delightful conversation and yeah i was nervous that i would have to i don't know monologue for a long time <laughs> and run out of things to say and <laughs> here we are at the end and i'm like i have so many this is just like brings up more and more mm -hmm. thoughts yeah yeah if it was a monologue it would be i mean there's a certain value to a monologue but I think it's far more interesting yeah. to have a conversation. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for for being interested in my story. Mm, of course. weird difficult stairs that were too long which at one point was described to me that they were too long like they made it so that like women could run down them faster and men couldn't run down them oh. as well for like rape prevention purposes <laughs> really i don't know if this is actually true i just remember somewhere hearing this in the ether and then of course everyone was like but they can just run down the ditch on the side <laughs> So 
also, this might have just been a weird rumor. <laughs> that seems like a weird rumor. I assume it. they just built the stairs that way because that's just like the grade that the hill was at. But whatever. Yeah. 